Hello and welcome to High Heels and Heartache. I'm your host, Kendall Ann Combs. Thank you so much for tuning in. On this episode of the show, I chat with Dr. John Klein about why we dream. Dr. Klein is a fellow of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and he's also a diplomate of the American Board of Sleep Medicine. He walks me through all about the mechanics of why we sleep and all the different theories of why we dream. It was such an interesting conversation, and I know you're really going to enjoy it. So coming up, Dr. John Klein. and heartache on the line with me today. I have Dr. John Klein. Hi, Dr. Klein. Hi, how are you, Kendall Ann? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So you are an expert on sleep. So tell me, how did you get into that, into studying sleep and dreaming? What brought you to that? You know, I think I'd have to really go all the way back to the the 60s when I first learned about um, uh, REM sleep and dream sleep, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think we're all from an early age aware that every night we have these kind of strange experiences. And particularly as a kid, sometimes as an adult, it can be kind of hard telling the difference between what actually happened and what happened in a dream. And sometimes those can be a bit difficult to sort out for a while. Um, but I really first found out about this as a result of an article on a movie that came out then. I think it was called something like Fantastic Voyage. And it was about, uh, you know, people being shrunken down and injected into someone and they go on an adventure <laughs> through their system or whatever. And uh, the, the article actually started off with a story about somebody um, basically being treated with some kind of drug that affected their uh, dream sleep. And it was just really fascinating. And, and over the years, I learned more and more about it. And it turned out at that time, uh, the REM state had only been discovered back in the 1950s. So this was relatively new stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, articles were coming out about it. For the first time, we actually had some understanding of the kind of brain mechanisms uh, underlying uh, the dreaming process. And so I would say from a pretty early age, I, I had an interest uh, along those lines. And of course, as I got more into psychology and clinical psychology, dream analysis and understanding the dream processes has a long history and uh, things like psychotherapy, psychoanalysis and things like that. And uh, also in terms of uh, basic brain research. It's also true that, uh, you know, in the uh, 1960s, even into the 70s, people were looking at the effect of some of these new, what were then uh, new drugs to the Western world, these uh, hallucinogenic or psychedelic drugs, and how a lot of the mechanisms that seem to be involved with the kind of visual or emotional experiences they caused were also being mediated by the centers of the brain that were involved in uh, the dream state. So there were all these like Mm. interconnections and uh, a lot of really interesting uh, research that was going on. So that goes way back. But when I actually started really getting involved in the sleep field, was uh, over 20 years ago when I was uh, working at a hospital that uh, here in Connecticut that had uh, one of the largest uh, sleep laboratories in the country. And so there were a couple of us as uh, psychologists who actually got to learn a lot about sleep. We were able to learn how to read sleep studies and things like that. And uh, that's when I really started uh, getting interested in it from the perspective of a a really scientific and clinical point of view. And that's just continued since then. 
So I would say really having that opportunity to really work with data, to really see what these things look like in polysomnography, uh, to be giving feedback to people on their experiences during the night, during sleep studies, uh, those kinds of things really were um, seminal in my own developing interest in the area. That's so cool. It's funny that you mentioned that a movie kind of sparked <laughs> this imagination in you right. because you have so many articles out about sleep. Um, right. But it was one of your articles that referenced a movie that I was like, I have to have him on the show. It's one, <laughs> it's okay. one that says something with poison in it. Poppies. Oh, oh, poppies. <laughs> That's right. And right. that, that is a famous quote from the Wicked Witch of the West from yes. the Wizard of Oz, my all-time favorite movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it is many people's all-time favorite movie. I, I remember being terrified by it as a kid. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I would say as a work of fantasy, it's just one of the, the greatest ever done to yeah. this day. I mean, yeah. it's, it's wonderful. But yeah, yeah. So again, that that kind of thing like, um, you know, even the, the name for... Uh, uh, the most, the original and, and most famous of the uh, opiates is uh, morphine, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Or Morpheus, the uh, god of dreaming. Oh my gosh. Right? That is so, so cool. Morphine. Yes. Yeah. Morpheus. Oh, wow. That's so <laughs> cool. Oh my gosh. I learned so much from you. I'm so excited. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, so I think there are lots of connections, you know, and um, certainly, you know, these things have uh, shown up in various works of art, human literature going as far back as we have records and, uh, you know, and, and in, in movies and television, um, all kinds of artistic productions to this day. Mm-hmm. So before we talk about dreams, um, mm. let's talk just about like the basics of sleep, yes. because honestly, in like one of the first paragraphs of the first article that I read that you wrote, <laughs> okay. I was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that this is actually what was happening. So you wrote um, in your article, how do brains dream? You mm -hmm. say sleep is not a passive process that automatically occurs when stimulation to the brain is decreased below some threshold, but it is an active process requiring the coordination and integration of various centers within the brain. That absolutely shocked me because mm -hmm. I just thought like you just get bored and you fall asleep. So yeah. tell us about all of the coordination and all of the different things that are working together to make you fall asleep. Yeah, so actually a large part of the brain is actually involved in with either maintaining, well, initiating and maintaining alertness or initiating, maintaining sleep or switching between different states within sleep. And uh, it actually is a very complex process and involves a lot of different uh, areas in the brain that have to be finely coordinated to actually um, you know, cause this to, to happen. So, um, I mean, it, it, even in the 1800s, you could find medical literature that, you know, discusses, because people didn't really know, I mean, we still mm -hmm. don't really know, but at that time, uh, sleep was often described as kind of being this intermediary stage between life and death, right? It was kind of like, uh, when you're dead, all bodily processes are stopped permanently. When you're awake and alive, you know, everything is working and, and sleep is this kind of in-between state. And it was kind of mysterious. And, you know, why would we do this, you know, to be vulnerable for six, seven, eight hours a day, uh, you know, vulnerable to 
predation to attack, you know, uh -huh. uh, all different kinds of things can happen. And yet, uh, we and every other animal that we've looked at uh, does this. Uh, so it seems to, you know, function in some important way that makes it worth taking the risk to do it. Um, so even in the early 20th century, as people started doing research, say, on uh, sleeping cats, um, it seemed like, you know, if you just cut off the flow of sensory information to the higher cortical centers, that that would kind of put you into a state of uh, sleep, but what it really turned out was that was actually more like a state of coma. You know, oh. where, you know. So sleep is something you can uh, pretty easily, all things considered, be aroused from. Whereas coma, not so easy, uh, or maybe mm. even impossible to kind of bring you out of that. So it turned out that 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 really wasn't it. And I think it is still kind of an idea that if you just decrease. Um, you know, your kind of sensory input that that will allow the brain to automatically go into this rest state. Um, of course, anybody who has been awake late at night, you know, uncomfortable in bed, looking at a dark ceiling uh, knows that even when you cut down the, uh, you know, the sensory input to the brain, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go to sleep. So um, the process of sleep can really be clearly seen um, in the electroencephalogram when you're you know, looking at someone basically transitioning from wake into sleep. And, and I would say that, you know, we usually think of human experience as having like three different primary states. And, you know, obviously this can be further subdivided, but there's wake and then there is sleep, which is deep sleep and REM sleep. Uh, so each day, the idea is we go through at least three different uh, states of consciousness that are pretty different, although they may bear some uh, similarities. And so as you're uh, resting and relaxing, basically the kind of active brain pattern that you would see during wakefulness begins to give way to uh, the famous alpha kind of wave, you know, which indicates the eyes are closed and the person is beginning to relax. And eventually you begin to see theta waves appearing that, which are very slow. Um, you know, alpha tends to be more rhythmic than the kind of brain waves you're seeing during wakefulness. And then that actually switches into uh, a pattern that's called um, uh, low amplitude mixed frequency, which will be stage one sleep. And it's a, a very light kind of sleep. Uh, you might not even be aware that you are asleep. And uh, mm. in that stage, if someone calls your name, you wake right up. And uh, if you're asked where you're asleep or not, you have about as high a probability of saying, yeah, I was asleep as no, no, I, I was just resting. Uh, <laughs> right. So it's kind of that intermediate. And if you go a little bit longer, you begin to see the appearance of what are called K complexes and sleep spindles, which are uh, in the, um, the EEG. And then that indicates that the person is now transitioning into stage two sleep, which is a kind of average depth of sleep. Um, and, um, and then if you continue to, uh, process through this, you'll go into the very deep or stage three sleep, uh, known as NREM stage three. And then after a period of time in that, uh, you'll go into, uh, the rapid eye movement, uh, or REM sleep. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, then at the end of that, you're probably back in about stage two. And then the whole process, you kind of have to fall back asleep and go back out into deep sleep. And that repeats over the course of the night and the relative amounts of those frequencies are changing. So you have to ask, what is it that's going on in the brain that allows this to happen? So there are areas in the brainstem and in the thalamus that actually control um, our level of alertness. And mm. so those cells are actually actively 
uh, beginning to inhibit the flow of information from the thalamus to the higher brain centers. And that's actually important because uh, virtually all of our sensory information passes through this uh, subsection of the brain called the thalamus. And that um, is an early way station where it gets processed and then sent up to higher uh, centers, all except for smell, which, uh, you know, the, uh, the part of smell is actually kind of directly a part of the brain. Uh, it may be one of the reasons why it's so emotionally evocative. You know, if you, you know, you're having that uh, biscuit and suddenly remember sitting in grandmother's uh, kitchen, you know, yeah. 20 years ago or something like that. Uh, but in any case, though, so those uh, centers are actually actively uh, putting us into this uh, state of um, NREM sleep. And uh, during that time, there's a really interesting thing that happens where um, they actively are inhibiting the flow of information from the thalamus to the cortex. And after doing that for a while, it kind of bursts through in a uh, kind of like a, a rebound effect. And mm. that then actually sends this, you know, kind of like pattern up to the, uh, the cortex. And then it, it radiates out over the cortex and gets picked up as these sleep spindles, which are like in the 12 to 14 cycles per second range. And uh, when you're scoring a sleep study, it kind of looks like an eyelid, you know, it kind of rises up and then comes down. It lasts about half a second to a second and a half. And think that it's during that time that uh, information is actually being transferred from the kind of temporary day store into uh, long-term store. And so it's really important in terms of uh, memory and learning processes. And uh, then after a period of time, other cells come on uh, in, into action and actually begin to uh, activate other areas of the brain and suppress other areas. And that's when you get into the REM state, mm -hmm. uh, which is um, basically uh, during the, uh, the, the deep sleep, what I just described, uh, when you're in that like stage two, you know, brain metabolism, that is the use of oxygen and glucose might be down somewhere around five, 10%. But when you get into the deep sleep, it may be down like 25 to 40%. So you're really talking about a significant reduction in the actual metabolic activity of the brain. And it's in this kind of rhythmic firing state. Probably a lot of uh, cleansing processes are occurring then. Um, you know, this kind of information transfer occurs. Uh, but then in dream sleep, you actually have the parts of the brain, like the limbic system, uh, some of the visual areas are as active or maybe even sometimes more active than they would be during the day, while the kind of frontal areas and the integrated parts of the brain are relatively shut down. And so you have these like really powerfully emotional and visually um, interesting kinds of experiences that we, if we wake out of that and are aware of it, that would be the dream. Mm. And that then oscillates back and forth across the night as these uh, systems, you know, basically regulate this process over four or five of these cycles through the night. So I guess I need to stop telling people that I have to turn my brain off to sleep, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of the opposite. There's a lot going on there. Sleep spindles. You yeah. Know? That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. So thank that you really for, is true. Yeah. Thank you for describing those, those different, um, parts of sleep, those different mm -hmm. stages. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that you brought up um, that I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. So what is day residue and how does that affect the brain? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So day residue is actually a term that comes from Freud and uh, uh -oh. you know, 
Right, right, right. Yeah, warning, <laughs> warning signs on that. So, um, but it, it actually turns out to kind of be a, a useful concept beyond what he was originally talking about. But it, it actually is something I hear people talking about fairly frequently. And so his idea was that kind of like a kernel around which the dreams, and of course, he was really interested in dreams because he felt like you could learn a lot about your unconscious processes by becoming aware of and studying the the, the dream mm-hmm. and uh, so the idea is that the day residue is a little component of something that's happened during the day that gets incorporated into the dream and people will often talk about this like you know uh, I, I had this dream about you know giving a presentation or something like that and it turned out that Earlier in the day, I uh, had walked by an office where someone was giving a presentation or something like that. It seems like it's like some little part of the day that gets incorporated into the dream. Um, and that is actually fairly common that people will be able to identify these things. Uh, wow. and, and maybe, yeah, it may be very limited, but uh, it, it's that little leftover part of the day. Uh, but then what I think is really interesting from a more neural point of view is this idea that um, some of the kind of processing that becomes more prominent during the uh, sleep state may actually have to do with things that have gone on during the day. So mm-hmm. there are those things like if you've, uh, you know, like uh, learned a, a new map or you've gone through a maze or something like that, then at night, there's actually activation uh, above the kind of baseline levels that you would see in people who hadn't, hadn't had that experience and say that the hippocampus, which would indicate that there is some kind of like uh, spatial processing that's going on during the night, that that information that got uh, recorded during the day is then actually being worked on uh, mm. during the night. Um, so, so there is a, a way in which um, the information that comes in during the day seems to then maybe affect different areas of the brain. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that leads to the idea that maybe one of the really important things that happens with sleep uh, is that it affects our uh, memory and learning processes. And it's, it's really important for that. Mm. That's really interesting. So before we get into, you know, why we're dreaming, Mm. I thought it was really interesting when you discuss dream logic. Yeah. Because that was, that was so strange to me. So what is dream logic? Yeah. So I think you'd have to say that dream logic is really uh, the idea that when you're in a dream, all kinds of things that would seem really strange and impossible, like in our day-to-day waking lives seem to make perfect sense, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, this, this, yeah, this is normal. You know, I'm, uh, I'm uh, floating along on a cloud over, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, something like that. Uh-huh. And so those kinds of uh, things that wouldn't make sense in our waking logic uh, just seem normal in the, uh, in the dream state. So dream logic really refers to this kind of different ways in which things are put together or patterned in a dream as opposed to what we typically experience or think about during the day. And, and I think going back to your thing about the, uh, the movies, uh, one of the things that I've always found interesting is that uh, there are certain um, directors. I mean, David Lynch, of course, is the primary one that seemed particularly good at being able to create these dream sequences that really uh, emphasize this kind of dream logic. And um, they're kind of like profound to watch you you really don't know exactly what they're 
supposed to mean for mm -hmm. like a real dream, but they do kind of create an emotional experience in us. And, and I think that's um, really the essence of dream logic. Um, I, I was actually just recently uh, binge watching The Sopranos, and uh, I think it was in the fifth season, there's uh, a prolonged dream sequence where Tony Soprano is like uh, um, kind of meeting up with a lot of the people he's done terrible things to or oh no <laughs> yeah yeah and, and they're just kind of varying between different kinds of things and you know he he might suddenly be in the back seat of the car he might be in the front seat of the car he might be in an entirely different location and you know this is a dream even if they don't tell you it's a dream because you know these things aren't things that would ordinarily occur in the normal narrative of this uh story and of course it does turn out he is dreaming uh later but um so i think that's the the intent between behind this uh term of dream logic mm -hmm. and i love that you include a quote of <clears throat> dream logic makes just as much sense as day logic it simply follows different rules right right so that's uh david galertner who's one of the um uh, famous computer scientist at Yale. And uh, I think what he's getting at with that is that, um, you know, in science, we can get overly focused on this kind of rational understanding of what we experience in our day-to-day -day lives. And dream logic, I think, actually is more kind of that emotional, spiritual kind of uh, state that actually is also important to the full experience of being a human. Mm -hmm. and uh and our, our human experience so i think what he's really saying there is that you know within its own framework you know this the dream logic does make a certain kind of sense it's not going to be the kind of um logic that we would employ in say solving a math problem but that's not the point it's a different kind of logic that has to do with you know how our emotions work or how our feelings are directed and, and things of that nature so what could we do if like if we want to explore our own dream logic. Yeah. So uh, this is actually something that people can, um, can pursue. And uh, we actually use this sometimes clinically um, for, for, for dealing with certain kinds of, um, um, well, often like problems that come up with dreaming, like, you know, people who are having nightmares uh, with post-traumatic mm -hmm. stress disorder or things like that. Uh, but if you, regardless of whether you, you know, you're, you're dealing with some kind of traumatic event that gets expressed in your dreams, you can still uh, explore your own dream logic by, um, well, first of all, really taking the intention to increase your awareness of dreams. And mm -hmm. so probably the most easy way of doing that is like right upon awakening, because we're often awakening out of a dream state. Uh, that's often a really good time to kind of catch uh, maybe some of those fleeting memories of a dream and, uh, and probably pretty quickly recording it either by quickly writing it down or maybe dictating it into a, you know, a dictation program or something like that. Um, so that, uh, you can kind of catch that while it's still fresh because it does tend to evaporate pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And so you really do need to catch it when you have the opportunity to do that. So, um, as you're, um, you know, waking out of sleep, if you're aware of a dream, take a moment to just kind of quickly write that down. When you're going to bed at night, kind of give your, your unconscious that intention that, you know, in the morning, I'm going to try to really be aware of any kind of dream process that's coming up. And then, you know, as you begin to develop that skill of being more and more aware of and more and more able to require, uh, recall uh, 
dream content, then you can keep a log of it. You can begin to write out the scenarios. You can begin to you know, notice the kinds of emotional states you're experiencing, the kinds of events that occur. They may seem disjointed and strange. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over time, as you begin to accumulate more of these kind of um, dream scenarios, and as you get a, a better understanding of your own emotional and kind of logical progression in these dreams, um, I think you can begin, begin to pull out themes and emotional states, and, and those might be quite meaningful when you have a chance to really uh, accumulate a greater understanding of your own dream process that way. Mm-hmm. All right, now it's time for, for why we're here, right? So, <laughs> okay. so can you walk me through the theories on why we dream? Why does it happen? Why is it necessary? Like, why are we dreaming? Yeah, well, I mean, so this is still not fully uh, nailed down, which is why we have a lot of different theories, right? So mm-hmm. all of them seem to have something to... Um, recommend them. Um, but nobody has been able to definitively say this is the reason for dreaming. Um, and maybe there is no single reason for it. Um, one of the earliest that uh, at least of a kind of scientific theory that came up was this uh, reverse learning concept. Hmm. So the idea that uh, actually what is happening during the dream process is that um, these images and things that are coming up are kind of being evaluated, sort of uh, a lot of what happened during the day and, and things that have been recorded into memory in the past are, you know, being reviewed. And um, it's sort of like, oh, okay, well, this is an important item I need to hang on to. And this is something that I don't need. And it gets dropped out of memory. So it's actually a kind of active forgetting process that clears oh, wow. out, yeah, clears out the unnecessary uh, stuff. Um, actually, Crick of Watson and Crick, Uh, fame, you know, the people who came up with the, uh, or it gets attributed to them, the, um, you know, structure of the DNA with the double helix. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Crick in his later days, uh, you know, actually pondered um, along with others, uh, what the meaning of dreams and the dreaming process may be. So he was really looking more at kind of like the, the neural underpinning of it. So I think in this view, the dream is just sort of almost like a random cascade of things that have been in memory store that have come in during the day. And we're really uh, going through some process of going through that and then, and then discarding the things that we don't need or that aren't really useful. Um, Mm. Yeah. So that, that actually could be it. I mean, there could be uh, a good deal to that. Um, Then there are other uh, theories that are look at it more actively. I mean, one I kind of find compelling myself is the idea of, um, you know, this idea that um, the dream is kind of like rebooting after mm-hmm. being asleep, you know, and, and it is kind of like a, an internet meme, you know, this idea that uh, going to sleep is almost like literally rebooting a computer, you know, you kind of shut it down. Uh-huh. Um, and, and there is some of that that goes on, right? A lot of the, the things that have come up during the day that we don't need get cleared out, the synaptic connections get weakened in effect, um, just making the brain more uh, flexible for the next day. So we're like cleaning off a, uh, a whiteboard so that you can write new stuff on it the next day. Oh, that's so, so cool to think of it like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so that actually seems to be an, an actual physical uh, process that, that goes on. Um, but then as, as you think about it, um, and, and I, I, 
the way I really kind of conceive of this is that, you know, if, if, um, cause I've had it happen, you know, like on camping trips and things if if suddenly, you know, it's like three in the morning and you find someone shining a, uh, a bright light in your face and it's like, Hey, we got to get up and get going here. Something like that. Uh, just how difficult it is to get going when mm-hmm. your brain is like 25 to 40% lower me- metabolic rate. Uh-huh. And, right. And you're trying to, you're trying to function and, um, it's really not that easy to do. So the idea with this, this reboot uh, theory is that um, because the, the process of dreaming is so active, we're actually warming up the brain, literally, we're getting it ready to go for the day. And because of that, we're actually able to um, be ready for the day. And I think it is really true. You know, when you wake out of sleep pretty close to the end of a dream period, uh, you can um, generally be more alert and function better than if you're being wakened out of that deep sleep, which really makes it hard to get going. So, so it may be that part of what it's doing is kind of getting us ready for the, the day by kind of waking up and getting the brain going before we actually have to function. Um, and then there are um, ideas, and, and I think there is actually a lot to this, that um, um, there are, are, are important learning processes and uh, information processing inf- uh, that goes on during uh, sleep. Similar to what we kind of talked about before, like if you have certain kinds of experience during the day, um, then that's going to be processed by greater activity in those areas of the brain during the night. And, um, you know, I I don't think uh, meatloaf was the first person to to (laughs) use the term, but that let me sleep on it. Right. (laughs) And and it, it really is true. You know, many people do find that if they they kind of have a problem and they don't worry about it, but just sleep on it. The next day, they often find that they actually have made progress in, in uh, solving that problem. So I do think, again, going with your point about uh, there actually is a lot going on during sleep. There is this kind of processing and, and we, we probably need that. And it's probably stuff that one of the reasons we need sleep is that we do need to go offline to do this level of processing, to try to do that in real time while you're, you know, trying to stay alive and, you know, keep, Uh, keep everything going that you have to do um, in order for the brain to kind of catch up and really process all that information going offline um, in order to do that for a number of hours so that those kind of really intensive information processing uh, things can occur really uh, does make it sense. And, um, and then I think another really important one is uh, emotional processing. And I think that really is probably one of the is likely to be one of the more important functions of uh, REM sleep or -hmm. dream sleep uh, in that, uh, you know, because the limbic system is really active during that time, because normal kind of logical control of that is being suppressed. um, There is probably an opportunity for a lot of um, processing of, you know, really painful emotional things that, um, you know, it's kind of nice to be able to work on that while we're not particularly aware of it and maybe Mm -hmm. clear some of that out. Um, it is true that in studies that have been done where people are wakened out of dreams, you know, they look for the EEG pattern of, of dreaming, wake the person up and ask them what was going on. Um, it's generally that about 80% of dreams are not, um, not pleasant dreams. They're actually dealing with, you know, um, 
very difficult emotions. So that would kind of go along with the idea that, yes, there are some pleasant things to get processed in dreams, but they're probably really important for uh, emotional processing. And, and we know with people who have trauma, uh, obviously, you know, the nightmares and things where things aren't being fully processed because they're being wakened out of the dream, um, you know, also indicate that, that that is an important time for emotional processing. That's so interesting. So <clears throat> while you're dreaming, you're doing all of these things, like you might be eliminating unnecessary information. Mm -hmm. You might be processing information in order to solve a problem that you've had that day, which yes. by the way, I always just thought that like the let me sleep on it thing was just because then you wake up the next day and you're well rested. <laughs> right. <laughs> I did, well, that, that doesn't I, hurt either. <laughs> I didn't right. even think like, oh, you're dreaming yeah. and you're solving that problem. Yeah. You um, may actually be working on it. Yeah. And then the emotional processing that totally makes sense. And then there's another one that you said, and I was like, what? Um, you said it, you, dreaming might be preparing us for real danger by yeah. rehearsing coping strategies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, and again, if you think about a lot of the kind of things that come up in dreams are often what, like dealing with scary or difficult uh, things. So the idea is that, um, you know, kind of practicing these things in this safe environment, you know, when we're offline and in the dream world, uh, that then prepares us for things that we may encounter during the day. And, and these might be things that, you know, are really deeply rooted in ancient human experience, right? You know, the mm -hmm. dealing with uh, wild animals or, uh, you know, attackers or things like that. And so um, probably fairly profound kinds of things that um, may be getting rehearsed. So yeah, that, that is uh, another real possibility for uh, at least part of what's going on in this uh, dream state. Mm -hmm. So, so maybe we're dreaming because of all of these things, like, right. We don't just right. have to choose one. Um, but what I thought was really fascinating is that, um, is there evidence that even before human babies are born, they are dreaming? Yeah. So that's a really interesting point. Um, so there was this recent study that was done at Yale, um, published last year. Um, now this was done in actually newborn mice rather than um, you know um, you know fetuses or anything like that. But in newborn mice, before their eyes have opened, um, they were able to show that there are these um, kind of patterns of um, brainwave activity being generated by the retina of the uh, the, the mouse eye that uh, was sort of like, like forward motion through the environment. And mm. so the idea from that was that you could consider this a kind of dreaming. Obviously we don't know exactly you know, what it's like to be a mouse in this state, uh, <laughs> but right. I mean, but we're, we're hypothesizing that could be um, kind of like, you know, this process of getting the brain ready in this case, not just for the day, but for life. Mm -hmm. And uh, that uh, by generating these kinds of patterns before the mouse has ever had to deal with real things out in the world, the brain is already beginning to organize itself to deal with that kind of information. So when the eyes do open, they're already set and ready to more quickly like learn and take advantage of their experience without having to start from zero. Wow. Uh, so in the case of humans, um, it's, uh, generally known that um, by about the third 
trimester of um, pregnancy, uh, human babies are, or um, the fetus is actually beginning to have uh, brainwave activity that is like um, sleep. And probably some of that is dreaming. And the reason wow. that we, we think that is, you know, if, uh, like for infants, uh, newborn infants, um, they spend about what, 18 hours or so uh, of the day sleeping. And uh, the pattern is quite different from what it is in children, teenagers, and adults. Uh, in that um, they spend about half that time in uh, what's been called quiet sleep. And that's pretty much similar to not exactly the same because the brain is still developing and all these uh, rhythms are developing, but it's pretty similar to uh, the NREM or non-dream sleep. And then the other half of the time, so about 50% of the time is in what is pretty similar to REM uh, sleep. And that's been called active sleep. So infants are really kind of in and out of those two different stages and spending about half their time uh, in one or the other. And um, so that would indicate, you know, again, that early in life, having a lot of dreaming going on is probably helpful or really important or getting the brain going. So if you kind of run that back to like the moment of birth, um, very soon after uh, birth, uh, human infants are able to you know, begin to like focus on objects. They, they already have some degree of ability to begin learning from the environment. So they're not just starting out from absolute zero. You know, mm -hmm. they can probably pretty quickly tell what is mother and what isn't. They can, you know, begin to focus on, you know, if you have objects suspended above the crib and they're beginning to follow those. So the idea is that some of that may, and again, some of this is a bit speculative, but that could be occurring because uh, during gestation, and in that last trimester, there is some of this kind of like preparatory work that's been going on um, and in a dreamlike state. The other thing is we know that it can't be the same as the kind of learning that occurs after birth because being in the womb is a really different experience. You're going to get different kinds of stimuli from that than you would be like out in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, so whatever it is about that state, something is uh, allowing the the infant to be ready to go virtually at, at birth to begin to uh, learn and consolidate memories. Wow. Yeah. I, I, you know, when I was first reading all your articles, I was just like, I just wanted to know, like, why do we dream? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But after, you know, reading them and listening to you, it's so fascinating, like how important dreaming actually is. Right, right. Like yeah, that, that amazes me. Yeah, I, I mean, these are really fundamental processes. And um, it has led some people, you know, to, to this um, idea that um, sleep and dreaming and these things are not really like a waste of time or something that we want to uh, eliminate, but that in fact, these are critical to our daytime functioning and that uh, without adequate sleep and the ability to do these kinds of things, we just wouldn't be able to function the way we are able to do. And so it and, really is important. And see, again, I always just thought that that was because you needed to like rest your body, but mm -hmm. I, I, you're blowing my mind that actually we also need that time for our brains to be doing what, you know, any of the theories are while yeah. we're dreaming. That is yeah. 
That's yeah. so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really true. Also, um, sleep isn't necessarily all that restful. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, there there is a lot going on. And um, if you think about uh, like during the uh, the REM sleep, uh, that's a particularly hard to understand thing because uh, you're actually paralyzed, right? So you're not oh. moving. And you're not moving because you don't want to be doing what you're doing in the dream, right? So in the dream, we're using the same brain areas that we're using when we're actually perceiving things. Um, so you don't want to be like trying to dive into a pool from your bed or anything like that. So, so we're actually shut down so we can't do that. Um, at the same time, the brain's very active. And so our breathing and heart rate become more uh, erratic. And uh, so for people who have things like sleep apnea, that can be a really dangerous time because they're, um, you know, they're more likely to have um, uh, periods of stopping breathing and things of that nature. So mm -hmm. uh, it actually is a kind of risky state and uh, one that isn't necessarily uh, relaxing or comfortable in the way we usually think of that. Mm -hmm. And you know, now we have all of this science that's helping us theorize why we're dreaming. <laughs> yeah. But dreams have actually been kind of studied and like revered for ever. Yeah. So um, in one article, you discussed dream catchers mm -hmm. and that's so mm -hmm. fascinating to me. So like, how do, how do just dream catchers show us that dreams have been important to humans forever? Yeah. Well, I think, um, as I understand it, and I don't claim to be an art historian or, you know, uh, a historian of Native Americans, but, um, you know, for the, the tribes that actually uh, developed the, the dream catcher, you know, it's, as I understand it, it's, um, well, so if people know what a dream catcher is, it's usually like a um, circular piece of wood, primate out of a willow or something like that, often held together with sinew. And then there is a kind of net inside of it, if you can kind of picture this, mm -hmm. that sort of is like a, an intricate uh, spider's web. And then you can embed into that or have hanging off of it things like feathers or, you know, various, um, you know, like uh, minerals or things like that. They're actually quite beautiful. And the idea was you would hang them above like uh, the crib where the, the baby would be, or, um, you know, certainly adults could use it. And, and their idea was, um, and I think that this is the story, but that uh, there was a um, uh, kind of an entity in their uh, mythology of the um, um, the spider woman who was like a protector. And, you know, again, we kind of think of spiders like being scary and oh, all yeah. that. Oh, yeah. As soon as yeah. you said spider, I was like, ah, yeah. 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 <laughs> but uh, actually, you know, the reality is we're a lot more dangerous to them than they generally are to us. <laughs> That's and, true. <laughs> and there are people who say, you know, if you see one, you probably should leave them alone because it's probably doing a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, but uh, so the so the idea was, I think, as the as the tribes kept moving out and growing, you know, it was harder and harder for the spider woman to get around to protect everybody. So these kind of, um, you know, art objects uh, that would serve a similar kind of uh, function in, in that they could, you know, if the air is kind of full of all this dream material and what they can do is kind of catch the bad dreams and, and keep them out and then kind of funnel the, uh, the good dreams down, they're kind of a nice thing for the, the sleeper and mm -hmm. kind of offer some degree of uh, protection. But what it means is that obviously people have, even before all of this science, been aware of the importance of dreaming and, and how it does you know, reveal certain things about the human experience. And, and people have tried to figure ways of uh, 
being able to, um, you know, have some kind of object that helps out with that process. And of course, the thing is with, with the dream catchers, you know, they've kind of become a, a common art thing that new age people or other artists do. And, and I think there is some controversy, uh, you know, about that because uh, I think many Native Americans could feel that that was a form of cultural appropriation or mm-hmm. not, not really being used the way it was originally intended to. Uh, I mean, they obviously are very beautiful and uh, do have a, a really interesting story to them. But even extending beyond that, um, we know that um, certainly uh, in the Bible, uh, you know, Joseph um, got uh, famous with the uh, Pharaoh by being able to interpret dreams and, you know, talking about the seven year fat years and the seven lean years. Uh, and his coat. And his coat, <laughs> yes. Yes, the, the multicolor coat, yes. And, uh, and uh, the... Um, shamans and uh, other uh, medicine people throughout history uh, among their whole uh, armamentarium of techniques, you know, which might include plant medicines and chanting and meditation. Uh, Certainly dreams and dream interpretation have always been an important part of that. Um, Certainly it's been incorporated into stories and and art. Um, I mean, there are lots of famous paintings from hundreds of years ago uh, depicting various kinds of dream um, scenarios. Uh, so yeah, I mean, obviously this is something that people have been aware of, but until the 1950s had no idea of what its underlying physiology was. Hmm. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. And I got to say, you have the coolest job. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it is pretty neat. I have to admit. Huh? You have a really cool job. Um, and I, I so appreciate you, you, you coming on and explaining. I just, I learned so much, especially, you know, just the whole like physiology of dreaming. I just, I had no idea that all of that stuff was going on in, in your brain while you dream. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the interesting thing about it, this got discovered, um, basically because back in the 1950s, they were studying, um, basically sleep in uh, infants. And, um, you know, I mean, graduate students will put up with a lot, but apparently (laughs) watching infants sleep was the most boring job that could ever be imagined. Uh, And they did notice that from time to time, their little eyes were moving under the lids. And so they invented the electrooculogram, which is basically putting uh, sensors beside the eyes that can pick up the eye movements. And uh, as they started doing that, they began to know this, notice this repetitive movement of the eyes um, that occurred at various times throughout the night. And uh, that had really not been detected before then. I mean, EEG had been applied to um, sleep as far back as the 1930s, but nobody had ever detected this kind of pattern until then. So, um, so it's, it's all relatively new. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat with me. And I, every night now, before I go to bed, I'm going to say, Kendall, if you, when you wake up, grab your iPhone and do a voice note of anything you can remember for there your There you dreams. go. There you go. I like it. That sounds like a great plan. Uh, and come on back when, if you ever want to talk about sleep or dreams ever again, come on back. Cause I've, I learned so much from you. Thank you so much for being here. Well, well, thank you and uh, have a good day and have a great weekend. And I uh, hope you have a great time with the uh, Easter money. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> Bye <Bye-bye. laughs> okay. now.
Once again, thank you so much, Dr. Klein, for being on the show um, and teaching us all about the science of sleep and why we dream. If you're interested in reading any of Dr. Klein's uh, Psychology Today blog posts, there's a link in the show notes and you really should check them out because they're really, really so cool. And while you're clicking around the internet, uh, why not go to Amazon and pick yourself up a copy of my book, What I Wish I Knew, Surviving and Thriving After an Abusive Relationship. If you were in an unsafe, unhealthy, or toxic relationship, there is help available. Please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at one 800 799 7233. Again, that number is 1-800-799-SAFE.